Let's talk about King Tut. King Tut is the most famous of all the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. And it's interesting, his fame is not because of his importance. The truth is, King Tut only lived to be 19 years old, died as a teenager. His reign was very short. But his popularity is because his tomb is the only one that was discovered with ancient artifacts in it. The rest of all the pharaoh's tombs had been looted by ancient grave robbers. Well, the Oriental Institute sent archaeologists who were part of the team that discovered and excavated King Tut's tomb back in 1922. And this statue that you see behind me is of King Tut, discovered in excavations just outside of his tomb. It's 17 feet tall, largest statue of King Tut. It is 3,300 years old. Can you imagine that? And this statue was found outside of King Tut's mortuary temple. A mortuary temple is a rather odd practice that the pharaohs uh, utilized back in their day. What they would do is they'd build the temple in their lifetime, and then upon their death, they'd leave a large endowment that was sufficient to pay priests to come to their mortuary temple three times a day and pray for them with the hopes that those prayers would increase their lot in the afterlife. The pharaohs of, of ancient Egypt were obsessed with the afterlife, and so we find numerous practices focused on extending life beyond the grave, for the wealthy at least, in Egypt. For example, mummification. King Tut's body, though 3,300 years old, was found intact in his grave. There's actually three mummies here at the Oriental Institute. Egyptians wanted one thing above all else. They didn't want death to be the end. And they would spend their whole lives building these pyramids and preparing whatever it took to get them beyond the grave. Aren't you interested in living beyond the grave as well? You know, one of the things that I greatly respect about the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, was their fascination with death, their, their obsession with how do we make sure that we get to heaven, to paradise, whatever that may look like. You know, it seems sometimes that we Americans kind of push death out of our minds and just say, la, 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 I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it. You know, people just look at this life and they arrive at death unprepared. To an Egyptian, that was unthinkable. And so we're going to talk. This, this message is entitled, Trusting God's Salvation. What is God's plan to get us saved, to get us into heaven? Do we know it? Do we know it well enough that we can be confident that we're going to heaven when we die? Do we know it well enough that we can explain it to our friends and family to ensure that they have made appropriate steps to ensure their eternal destiny? important topic. 
But before we dive into talking about everlasting life, before we talk some more about King Tut, which I'm excited to do, I have some more things to show you from the Oriental Institute. This is kind of sad. This is the last week of our series, Artifact, Discovering How to Trust God. And in the Egyptian room, uh, the Oriental Institute's divided into these various rooms, each room devoted to a region geographically. And in the Egypt room, there's some cool stuff. First thing I want to show you is a limestone engraving that was found in a tomb in the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes. You can see I'm looking at it here. Let's zoom in a little bit closer. And you can tell that it's of a boat, a boat that is made of papyrus reeds. Papyrus reeds that the scholars tell us were made watertight by smearing tar Uh, on the inside of it, pitch and tar. And then you'll notice that there are two baskets filled with some kind of produce, and the baskets are also made of papyrus reeds. Anybody making a connection here? Do you remember Moses, according to Scripture, was put into a basket that was made of papyrus reeds that had been water-sealed with pitch and tar, the same method that was used for the boats. And he was set afloat by his mother in the Nile River in an effort to save his life from the Pharaoh desiring to kill all the Hebrew babies. Isn't that amazing? You know, sometimes we hear the story of Moses in a basket made of papyrus reeds, made to be sealed with pitch and tar, and it seems kind of out there, kind of fictional, And then we go to Chicago, we discover this artifact that helps us realize that the story of Moses in the basket was firmly rooted in the cultural details of how things were done. Let's go to the next slide. The next slide here is of, again, this is in Chicago, there's a brick in our city that is made of mud and straw. Let's zoom in on it. And you can see the mud, and maybe you can see the straw, the pieces of straw that are in it. And the scholars indicate that the Egyptians strengthened their mud bricks by putting straw in them. And, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Weren't the, the Hebrew slaves, their job was to make bricks out of what? Mud and straw. In fact, when Pharaoh was really ticked off, he told the, the Jews, you must continue to produce the same quota of bricks, but I'm no longer going to supply you with straw. You've got to get the straw yourself. And I can remember thinking, really? Why would you put straw in bricks? Well, they did. That's how they reinforced these mud bricks. And this particular brick has a stamp in it. Do you notice? Like an oval. That, that oval is how the, uh, the pharaohs would sign their name. They all had an oval name stamp. And this particular stamp on this brick here in Chicago is of Ramses the Great. All of the pharaohs would stamp their bricks with their name so they, people would know this was built under his reign. And Ramses the Great is the pharaoh that most scholars think was the pharaoh of the Exodus. So that means that this brick here in Chicago was likely made by a Hebrew slave in the time of Moses, a Hebrew slave that would have been one who had followed Moses out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea. Isn't that cool? Oh, so much fun. Let me show you one more thing. So here is a replica of a scroll found in Chicago at the University 
of Chicago in the Oriental Institute, and the scroll is called the Book of the Dead. This particular one was excavated out of a tomb in Egypt. The tomb belonged to a man by the name of Arit Aru, and uh, it wasn't a surprise to find a scroll of the dead in his tomb because they're found in most tombs, and the 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 Book of the Dead, Book of the Dead is what it's called. The Book of the Dead was a description of how to gain eternal life. Again, how important is this question? How can I know that when I die, which is coming soon for all of us, that I will have eternal life? Now, the Egyptians believed, as evidenced by this copy of the Book of the Dead here in Chicago, They believed that there would be a judgment day, that upon death, we would all stand accountable, in their case, before the gods for how we lived. Let me introduce you to a few of the gods of the Egyptian religion. This is Osiris, uh, god of the dead, and so he's sitting as judge on this judgment day, though there is a tribunal of Egyptian gods. All of these stand for the 43 Egyptian gods who were the jury in the case of each deceased person. Speaking of the deceased, here is the deceased man feeling the intensity and weight of this moment as he places his soul on a scale. Do you see the scale here? His soul is being weighed to see how much sin is in it. The Egyptians, they they had a lot of things right. They knew there'd be a judgment day. They knew they'd stand accountable for how they lived. They knew that sin sticks with you. They believed that all of the evil that you had ever done, whether it be by word, what you said, or deed, what you did, or even thought, they said it all stays in your soul, and someday you're going to have to pay account for that. Now, what's interesting is as the amount of sin in his life is weighed, the god Thoth is recording the outcome. Because if there's too much sin in this person's life, the scale will tilt this way. And Thoth will record guilty. And when that guilty verdict is read, this beast here called the devourer will leap on the deceased and eat him. The Egyptians didn't believe in hell as we do, but rather an eternal death that results for those who have too much sin in their lives. Now, what do you you call this form of theology, this belief that the way to get to eternal life is by not committing sin? This is a works theology. And a works theology essentially says that you've got to be good enough to get to heaven. The term works is a term that our Bible uses, and works is essentially deeds that we do that earn us something. And so the Egyptians believed by doing good deeds, by living the quality of your behavior is what gets you into the afterlife, into paradise. They believed that you better not do too many bad things but they also believe that you better do a lot of good things. And so they had all of these good religious rituals that you had to do in order to also get into heaven. Of the religious rituals, you know what their biggest were? Maybe you're not surprised if you know the Egyptians. 
their biggest religious rituals were the burial rituals. They, that's why you see pyramids that have lasted for 4,000 years. That wasn't a monument to their memory as much as it was a ritual to impress the gods and get them into paradise upon death. Uh, mortuary temples, mummification. They believed that if your body was preserved for perpetuity, then you'd have a better chance of getting to heaven. Uh, when you look at tombs that last, uh, when you look at treasures filling those tombs, those treasures were believed to help them get to the end. And so works. The Egyptians said, I've got to make sure that as I live, I prove my worthiness by not sinning too much and by doing a boatload of good things so that in the end I am deemed worthy of eternal life. Sound familiar? Works mentality is nothing that's been lost in the distant history of ancient Egypt. It still characterizes modern religions today that tell you you better be good enough. And it still characterizes most Christians, I would argue. Most Christians today, you know, if you ask people on the street, you know, are you a Christian? Yeah. Why do you ask? You know, and you ask them, and, uh, do you think you're going to heaven? They say, well, I hope so. And the minute they say they hope so, they are revealing that they have a works-based salvation plan. And you say, what do you mean? Well, ask them more. Say, why do you hope so? And they'll say, well, I'm not perfect. I mean, I've done some things wrong, but I'm not as bad as most. I'm hoping that all things considered, I'm good enough. And what they're revealing by these answers is that their understanding of how one secures eternal life is that they believe that there's a scale and there's a continuum, you know, like Adolf Hitler's way down here and Mother Teresa's way up here and somewhere along the line they are and they're hoping that God's cut off. That's, that's a scary thing. It's like, how much does this weigh? You know, how, where, where's the, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, and it's just at the last minute it goes around. And then they realized, doggone it, had I not sworn that one time, I would have been okay. But that was the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, they're saying. The Egyptians actually believed that what was weighed was a feather. Their, their point was, listen, sin's a big deal. It doesn't take much. Just a little bit of sin. You can't say, oh, no big deal. Everybody does it. They'd say, no, it all is a big deal. And they were right about that. And so this anxiety that results in the soul when you have a works-based understanding of who gets to heaven is, is very, very real. Now let's do something fun. Let's compare two Egyptians on how they did in this works-based theology. And the two Egyptians that I'd like to compare are King Tut, Tutankhamun, was his full name, King Tut, and Moses. And you say, Moses wasn't an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew. But if you recall, he was adopted into Pharaoh's family and grew up in Pharaoh's palace. And so he was at the center of Egyptian life and was trained to be an Egyptian as well as his Hebrew roots. And so, oh, this is interesting. Did you you say, well, King Tut and Moses, when did they live? Do you know that it's quite possible and maybe even probable that King Tut and Moses were contemporaries. I want to acknowledge that Moses, there's debate about when he lived. There's the early date 
of Moses and the Exodus and the late dates. And scholars debate which date is correct. If the late date scholars are right, and most scholars point to the late date, that would make Moses and King Tut so much contemporaries that they were born within a couple years of each other. They were first cousins and would have been raised in the same house. That palace is where they both were brought up. Isn't that fascinating? Both men raised to know that, man, you better have good works and you better have burial rituals because they're the best good works. So let's, let's take a look at how King Tut did. Well, uh, did he have a mortuary temple? Yes, we know that because the statue from his mortuary temple is here in Chicago. Way to go. Check. Did he have a temple, um, a tomb? Yes, he had a tomb. They discovered it a while back, and you can go visit it and buy a ticket for 13 bucks. It's in the Valley of the Kings today in Egypt, and you can walk through King Tut's tomb. Did he have treasure in his tomb? And the answer is yes. Here's a picture of, of that treasure. It's since been moved to a museum in Cairo, but there were 3,500 pieces of furniture and treasure that were found and discovered, and they've lasted all this time. Did King Tut's body, was it mummified, and was it lasting? There it is. There's King Tut. He's not looking very good, but his <laughs> remains can be viewed to this day because his body was discovered mummified. Well, way to go, King Tut. I mean, you have got an impressive list of burial rituals to your credit. What about Moses, his, likely his first cousin? How did Moses do? Do you know about Moses' death? Moses lived a long time, and at the end of his life, uh, he had led the Israelites to the promised land, but God didn't allow him to go in. So Moses climbed up this mountain in, in Moab named Nebo, all by himself. Took a hike, got away. And on the top of that mountain, God said, Moses, you're not going to be allowed to go in to the promised land. You're going to die on this side of the river, but I want you to see where I'm bringing my people. And then Moses died all alone on that mountain. Now, I'll read to you the account of it. This is... Uh, found in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6. The Bible records that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord buried him, the Lord buried him, in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. This is so fascinating. Did Moses have his body mummified? No, there was no one with him to mummify his body. Did Moses have a tomb? No, no tomb. Did he have treasure? No, he was on a hike by himself with the Lord, nothing with him. Uh, All that's left is dust, and no one knows where. You know, unlike the pyramids of Moses' contemporaries where you can go to the tombs and see them, he didn't even have so much as a little tombstone where people could come and say, this is the place. This Moses, who was raised in the environment that says everything about your burial rituals matters, was deprived of it all. All by himself, nobody knows where the Lord dug a hole and put his body in that amazing. You say, Moses, 
you're in big trouble if that's right. And Moses would say, I know. But thankfully, Moses said, I know that's not right. The Lord had taught Moses that there was a different way, a way by faith that salvation and eternal life could be found. How was that? Let me read to you of a New Testament this time. I'm going to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 28. And this is a New Testament summary of a very important Old Testament event called the Passover. It was by faith. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. Do you remember what this is a reference to? This is the last of the plagues. Do you remember when God wanted to get the Israelites released? He brought plagues upon Egypt, and the last one was Judgment Day. Remember, this is Judgment Day. Someday the Lord is going to make us pay for our rebellion. Well, this last plague is small j Judgment Day. It's a minor Judgment Day that points to the major Judgment Day that will come later when we all appear before the Lord. But it was a small Judgment Day that God wanted to bring about to teach the world his plan of salvation. The angel of death has come to reap judgment, and the guilty will find their firstborn dying. God always said that the penalty of sin is death. But what are they to do? They are to sprinkle blood on their doorposts. So we got to have a door. And so I have a door here to just remind us of this profound moment. This, this is going to be an Israelite door for our uh, discussion. And one would ask, do the Israelites need to worry about the angel of death? Will the angel of death arrive at their door? And the answer is yes. In fact, it's called the Passover because the angel arrived at their door, but because of the blood, passed over. That's important. It's not that the Israelites said, oh, those Egyptians are in trouble because they're sinners and we don't have to worry about the angel of death because we're so morally impressive. No. The Israelites, no. You weigh our sins, you'll find us guilty as well. We're all in the same boat. The Israelites said the angel of death is coming our way and we're in trouble. And then imagine with me that a father comes to his son on the night of the Passover and says, hey, son, I need you to do something for me. I need you to capture the blood. Uh, You know what? He goes, yeah, we're going to have a lamb for dinner tonight. And that was normal. But then the dad says, I need you to capture the blood. As I slit his throat, you capture the blood. And the son will be, oh, gross. Dad, why would I do that? Well, here, son, here's a reason. Tonight's judgment day. And God is coming to judge the rebellion of mankind. And we, son, are sinners. And so God has said that the firstborn of every family, and that'd be you, son, is going to die tonight unless... The lamb dies on behalf of the family. Imagine the son saying, let's kill that lamb, dad. Let's go right now. You slit, I'll catch. You know, we'll do this. And the father said, here's what God wants us to do. When the lamb dies, now we're to take this blood 
And when the angel of death comes to execute justice, the angel needs to know that the innocent lamb has died on behalf of this family. And how we'll let that angel know is that we're going to paint blood on our doorpost. And that angel's going to come and he's going to realize, oh, this blood, the, there's been one. The death penalty has been satisfied for this family because the lamb, the innocent lamb, has died for the people behind this door. Though the people behind this door are guilty of sin and worthy of death, the blood has been shed for this family already. A substitute has taken their place. And so the angel says, I can pass over. You can imagine the young son saying, Dad, what's so big about this lamb? Why is this lamb's blood and his death on our behalf so powerful? Well, we know that it wasn't the lamb at all, but what the lamb pointed to in the future, the great sacrifice. You know, remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming? John the Baptist declared, everybody was listening, look, do you see him? He is the lamb. And they're like, it doesn't look like a lamb. No, he's the lamb of God who is killed for the sins of the whole world. All of a sudden it started to click. Oh, so that lamb was just a picture pointing to God's salvation plan that one will come, God will come in human flesh and take on the guilt of the world onto his shoulders. And he will die on the cross, paying the just penalty for our rebellion. And all who trust in him will find God's justice passing over. They will be forgiven. They will be made righteous so that they are not eternally killed because of this one who died on their behalf. Isn't that incredible? You know, I, uh, I want to turn you to a New Testament verse that states this so succinctly. This is out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, you have been saved. You people who are Christians, you want to know why you're going to heaven? You want to know why you're saved? You have been saved through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. Faith. This plan that God has is labeled faith. Works is when you look to yourself and you say, I'm really impressive and moral and righteous and religious. Works is when you say, look at me. Faith is when you say, I'm not looking at me at all. I'm not counting on my goodness at all. I am counting on or trusting in Jesus and what he did on my behalf. The verse says, we have been saved by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you understand how works can relate to, result in boasting? If you believe you're saved by works, you say, yeah, you wait to see me, baby. On judgment day, I'm going to shine. I'm going to be impressive. And people are going to say, wow, boasting. Is there boasting in faith? No. This is the opposite. This is where you say, I'm dead in the water on my own. And my only hope is Jesus and his blood shed as the just sacrifice for my sin. 
You see, in some ways, works and, and faith system are similar. They both acknowledge there's a judgment day. They both acknowledge that all sin matters. They both acknowledge that people are going to have to pay for their sin. I mean, they start off similar, but then they go in opposite, not only different, but opposite directions. Works is all about how great we are. Faith is all about how great he is. Work says, I can make it on my own. Faith says, Jesus is my only hope. One leads to pride, the other humility. God said there's only one way, and that's by faith. I had a friend I was trying to explain this to, and he just didn't get it. Though he grew up in a Christian family, a a branch of Christianity, he was still operating with a works mentality. And he said, Jeff, don't worry about me. I'll be all right. I'm starting to make some improvements. Admittedly, I had a wild, younger life, but I'm starting to clean my act up. And I said, you're right, and I applaud you for those changes. That's good. And he said, it's going to be good enough. It's going to be good enough. And I'm like, no, it's about Jesus and what he did for you to cover for your sin. And, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, you're right. Jesus is great, and his, the cross is great, you know, and he just wasn't connecting, you know. And then one day, a traffic ticket <laughs> made the connection. <laughs> and you say, a traffic? It was actually a parking ticket. Uh, this is not a parking t- this is This is a little envelope I found in the church offices. But for these purposes, we're going <laughs> to pretend it's a parking ticket. So we had gone to Ravinia to see a concert. It was he and his wife and my wife and myself. And the four of us, you know, if you've been to Ravinia, you know the parking situation's a mess. And, and he just said, let's park here. And I'm like, uh, dude, look at the sign. It says no parking. This is a bad idea. He's like, we'll be fine. We'll be, you know, gone. No, no, no trouble. And I'm like, all right. Sure enough, under the windshield wiper when we came out was a parking ticket. And he got all mad. Oh, man, I can't believe they did that to me. I go, oh, really? You're going to claim innocent on this whole matter? And he's like, all right, fine. 50 bucks, I'll pay it. And I came up to him, and I go, give me that. And I go, he goes, what are you doing? And I put it in my pocket, and he goes, hey, give me that, Jeff. He goes, if I don't pay that, I'm in a lot bigger trouble, so give me that. And I said, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to pay it for you. I'm going to put my 50 bucks in it and mail it in for you. He says, you can't do that. I'm the one who messed up, Jeff. That's nice of you to offer, but I, you told me not to. I'm the guilty party. Give it to me. And I go, no, I'm not going to give it to you. He goes, why? And I, he didn't want a sermon, but he got one right there and then. <laughs> I said, I, I was standing on the curb right there. I go, I'm doing this because I want you to understand what Jesus did for us. You're right. You can pay 50 bucks. You've got what it takes. But I'm telling you, the ticket that will be handed to you on Judgment Day, the amount of sin in your life and mine, I'm not saying, you know, we're different. You don't have what it takes to cover that debt. Your only hope is to let Jesus cover the debt for you, to let him die on your behalf and pay the death penalty. You see, that's what Jesus did. He yanked it out of our hands and he said, Let me pay this for you. All of a sudden, I saw the light of understanding go on in his eyes. And shortly after, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and now walks in confidence of his salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, my prayer is that we will not only understand 
for our own sakes so that we can be confident. Some people say, you know, your confidence is arrogant. People ask, do you think you're going to heaven? I'm like, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. And they're like, how arrogant. And, and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm quick to explain. It has nothing to do with me thinking I'm great, just the opposite. I'm a mess. But I'm trusting in one who has paid a penalty on my behalf. I've given my ticket to Jesus. And that's why I'm confident. I'm not wondering what the scale will say on that day. I know what the scale says. The scale says I'm a, I'm a sinner of, of impressive nature. I know that Jesus is my rescuer, my savior. It dawns on me that some of you at this very moment may be having a bit of an awkward sensation because you realize that you came today and if you had been asked, do you think you're getting to heaven, you would have answered, well, I hope so. I think, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I think compared to most, I'm pretty good. And now you're realizing that according to Scripture, this offers no hope. And you're realizing, I guess I never realized the significance of the cross of Christ. Here's the good news. In this moment, with this understanding, you can shift entirely from trusting in your own goodness into trusting in what Jesus did for you on the cross. It's that simple. In a prayer, you can turn to Christ and say, now I'm trusting in you. You're my only hope. This can be your moment of salvation. And so if you came in a little confused on this and want to firmly root yourself in faith, in trust in Christ, I want to provide a closing prayer where you can do that. We're going to bow our heads. You don't have to say anything out loud, but God is listening to the silent cry of your heart. And he's very interested if you're just going to whatever and let this prayer pass, or if you're going to turn to him and say, I'm looking to you, Jesus. I'm looking to you alone. And if you really cry in the silence of your heart, cry out, this moment, the blood of Christ is applied to the doorframe of your life, and you are forgiven and made righteous, not by your own impressive history, but because of what Jesus did on your behalf. Sound good? So let's all bow our heads. And if you want to be made right with God through the cross, pray with me silently. All right, Lord, we're just going to admit it. We are a mess. We're not impressive. We're not moral. We're not righteous in our own standing. We've messed up a lot. Things we can't even remember, but you remember. And so we're not going to say that we think we deserve heaven. We know we don't. But right now we're looking to you, Jesus, and asking you to save our souls. You died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And so we ask you, please forgive us. Apply your blood to the doorframe of our lives. You're our hope. And we pray, Lord, that in our forgiven state, we can now realize that the angel of death passes over, that we have no fear in Jesus. We're trusting in you. We're trusting in you to take our sin and wash it away. We're trusting in you to take our lives. Jesus, we don't just want 
to be forgiven. We want you, we want you to be our new friend, our new king. We want to try our best to walk with you and follow you for the rest of eternity. Take us. We're clinging in faith to you right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.